0: Well, I'm uh, in part two of my series on Purim and Providence. So this is Purim and Providence part two. And this story can be found in the book of Esther. It reveals the sublime truth of the power of God's hidden providence in bringing about his plans. Note carefully again that the name of God is not mentioned even once in the entire 10 chapters of this book. Why? I believe you'll find the story and the answer intriguing. More importantly is the meaning and its application for us today. In this series, we will inspire and strengthen your faith in facing the challenges that are presenting themselves in 2021. Our focus today will be on how and why an obscure and common Jewish girl becomes queen of Persia, the superpower of the day. So let me just recap from last week, just short and sweet. The king of Persia has thrown a glorious national party for all of his leaders in all of his provinces. He commands the queen to appear for all to see her elegant beauty. She says no. And defies the king's order. The king and his men convened and decided to remove her as queen and banish her. This was done to preserve an ordered kingdom form. Or I'm sorry, this was done to to preserve an ordered kingdom from the destruction of rebellion and division. They will now seek a new queen to replace the old one. That's the setting for our story today. Chapter 2, Vashti's successor. We'll pick up the reading in verse 1. We'll read down through this chapter. In fact, I've got a lot to to do today because I'm trying to make this a three-part series so that we're not still doing Purim weeks after Purim comes. So Esther chapter 2 and verses 1, reading down through the chapter. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what he had done, and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's attendants who served him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather together every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, into the custody of Hige, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given to them. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in the place of Ashti, And the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. Verse 5. Now there was at the citadel of Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shemi, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jokaniah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had exiled. Verse 7, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So this is a young Jewess. Her parents have already died. You can imagine what that would be like for a young girl in the diaspora, in exile, with no parents. And her cousin, Mordecai, basically adopts her and becomes a father to her, becomes a covering for her. That's all she has. This is the setting of the story of Esther. She's a young Jewish girl in exile, obscure in the eyes of all. Verse 8, so it came about when the command and decree of the king were heard and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa into the custody of Hige, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Hege, who was in charge of the women. This is providence. We talked about this last week, the hidden workings of God behind the scenes to bring about His plans. And this young girl now is being ripped away from the only one she knows, her cousin Mordecai, into the king's palace. You can imagine all of the trauma that would have caused in her heart, in her life. Yet all of this, in the end, would be part of what God was doing for his people. Esther 2 9. Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him. I want you to stop and think about this for a moment. She found favor with him. We know, and we've, we've talked about this before favor comes from God. God is the one that grants favor. We can see in this providence behind the scenes touching the heart of Hegei. He already has fa- you know a heart for her she has favor with him automatically from the word go and this is part of the working of god early on in this story before anyone knows what this is going to turn out to be it goes on to say so he quickly provided her and her cause with her i'm sorry he-, he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and food gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. So all of a sudden, her needs are being met, plenty of wealth, even servants attending her. She's in the best place in the palace for, 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 for these women. Again, the providence of God. Verse 10, Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, For Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. He's saying, hey, Esther, whatever you do, don't tell anybody who you are. Don't tell them you're Jewish. Why is that such a big deal? Because it seems like people groups from the beginning have been trying to kill the Jewish people in almost every generation. This is is the war between good and evil, if you'll remember this, this offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman at war with one another. And through the offspring of the woman comes the Messiah. So the Jewish people are the very ones that are often attacked in the world that we're living in because this world is a dark place and evil exists. And it sets itself against the people of God. So he says, don't tell them who you are, Esther. Verse 11, Every day Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. Verse 12, Now when the turn of each lady came to go into King Ahasuerus, after the end of her 12 months under the regulations for the women for the days of their beautification were completed as follows, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and the cosmetics for women. The young lady would go into the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem, to the custody of Shagaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in again to the king unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. Verse 15. Now, in the turn of Esther... The daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, came to go into the king. She did not request anything except what Hege, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. Verse 16. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Again, this favor issue. It's part of the covenant privilege of God's people. God turns the hearts of everyone who sees her and gives her favor with them. I mean, people just automatically, without even knowing who she was, automatically turn their hearts towards her. This is the providence of God at work. Verse 16, so Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus, to his royal palace in the 10th month, which is in the month of Tibet, in the 70th year of his reign. Verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the women and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins so that he set his royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. God gave her favor with the king, not only the king's people, but the king himself. And this obscure young Jewish woman in exile, no parents, taken from the only one that she known, all of a sudden, within one short year, rises from obscurity to the queen of Persia, the world superpower of the day, straight to the top. I mean, think about that for a moment. This is the providence of God at work. Verse 10, Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, For Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. Every day, Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she feared. After she becomes queen, it says in verse 18, the king gave her a banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his princes and servants. He also made a holiday for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. Esther, this young Jewish woman, becomes the most powerful woman in the empire. Why? For what purpose? Does life have no rhyme and no reason? You see, providence is the hidden works of God in exercising care and guidance in directing human affairs to bring about his will and plans. At this point, Esther has no clue as to why she was chosen, why she was exalted, why she came into this place of power. She doesn't have a clue. Neither does Mordecai, by the way. Romans eight twenty-eight. we talked about this last week. It says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. A lot of bad things happened to Esther. She was, she was quite troubled before she was even taken to the king's palace. And being basically taken against her will to the king's palace was troubling in and of itself. So the trauma was ongoing. She's probably wondering, God, where are you in all this? What is going on? And yet, God is saying, hold on. I'm going to cause all that happens to you, Esther, for your good. I'm going to turn it all around because you're called according to my purpose. I'm here to accomplish something much, much greater than what you've ever imagined. And even though you don't feel like chosenness is a blessing, You will in the end. What has happened to Esther happened under the providential working of God. He navigated this. There are no coincidences for her. Now, granted, providence isn't really understood until hindsight. You know, whatever's going on in your life, you might be saying, God, where are you? you got to hold on. The story isn't over. You trust in him. Because in the end, he's going to turn that around. And not only will it be a blessing for you, you'll see the greater purposes of why he allowed what he allowed in your life. Everyone's a Nestor. Everyone's a Mordecai to one degree or another. The principles relate to all of us. This is why the story is given to us. Let's go on, 19 and 20. When the virgins were gathered together a second time, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not yet made known her kindred or people. I'm sorry, let me go down to verse. Let's go to chapter three. Chapter three. Let's go back to chapter two. I want to read a little bit more about the providence of God here in chapter 2. Verses 21 through 23. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's officials, from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on king Ahasuerus. But the plot became known, known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on the gallows. And it was written in the book of the chronicles in the king's presence. Now on the surface, on the surface, there's nothing to highlight other than this extraordinary good that Mordecai does by informing Esther to inform the king in his name of this assassination plot. In and of itself, it's not that big a deal other than that, that good deed that Mordecai does. But know what God will use and how he will use this in bringing about his will, which is to preserve and to bless his chosen Jewish people. Chapter 3, Haman. Haman enters the scene, the Jew hater who conspires to kill all the Jews. It says, after these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agite, Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him. Verse 2, But Mordecai neither bowed nor paid homage. Houston, we have problems, right? Verse 3, The king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? This was not just people standing up, and honoring and paying homage to the prime minister, basically, of Persia, the king himself commanded everyone to bow. This was a command from the king. This is civil law. And Mordecai was practicing what we call civil disobedience. Mordecai was breaking the law, and he did so with decorum. He did so honorably. Not arrogantly, but honorably. It was a noble and respectable disobedience. Verse 4. Now it was, when they had spoken daily to him, and he would not listen to them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. So they, they basically tried to walk him off the plank, you know, and say, hey, Get back. You know, this is not going to bode well for you. You need to bow to him. Let's figure out a way you can do that. Let's try to legitimize that in some way. Let's talk. And Mordecai says, no, I'll have none of this. I'm not going to bow to him. I'm a Jew. I don't bow to anyone but God. He's the only one that I will worship and pay homage to. I might be breaking the king's law, but it's because there's a greater king who has a different law. At the end of the day, that was boiled down to, he's a Jew. Let's talk, let's talk to Haman. They're trying to explain to Haman. Haman's saying, why, why won't this guy bow again? What, what is that? Well, he's a Jew. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean that he's a Jew? Well, they kind of do things differently. They follow a different God. They follow different laws. They're different altogether. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. Verse 6, chapter 3. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Problem isn't Mordecai, it's the people group. If I kill Mordecai, it's just one Jew. All the rest will continue to stand, especially after I take his life. Now, I'll take out all of them. The solution is get rid of the Jewish people as a people. Verse 7, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, per, that is, The lot was cast before Haman day by day and from month to month until the 12th month, that is the month of Adar. So Haman resorts to what they call Purim, the casting of lots, an ancient practice, a pagan practice. It's a form of divination. Divination. Haman has decided, I'm going to kill the entire people group. So he consults his pagan gods in his pagan practices, casting the lot over and over and over because there was something in how they did that that they were able to divine the perfect timing for whatever major event they were trying to accomplish. They wanted their gods on their side in the right timing to accomplish this. It was a big deal that Haman was scheming. This is how we get the name of of, of verse 8 then Haman said to king Ahasuerus there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom their laws are different from those of all other people they do not observe the king's laws so it is not in the king's interest to let them remain Notice how he crafts his reason to gain the king's support. King, it's not in your interest. They don't they obey their own god. Their ways are different than everyone else in the kingdom. They're divisive. They're not politically correct, if you will. We need to move them out before trouble arises everywhere in your kingdom. What they didn't understand is that the king of heaven was their king. And he had a rightful claim on his people. And just like every other king and kingdom, his kingdom has a set of laws too by which he governs his people, a way of living for his subjects. Give you an example. The God of heaven clearly states that all human life is sacred, And that all human life has the fundamental right to life itself unhindered and unmolested by the state. Our government, think of our government today, right? Our government and our culture does not hold human life as sacred. They have different values and different standards and different ways of doing things than we do. They have legalized, protected, and are complicit in the slaughter of 60 million human beings to date. Our government is legalizing, fostering, and facilitating gender dysphoria among our children from sea to shining sea. They are destroying our sexuality, marriage, and the family by redefining it along the lines of abhorrent, deviant They are coercing us through fear-mongering to take an experimental medicine, an experimental vaccine that may have lifelong side effects. And if you dare speak out on these issues, they will vilify you and persecute you. You'll be censored and gagged by big tech companies. You'll probably lose your job. You will be harassed and pursued until marginalized completely in our culture. The rationale is this. You're a threat to the system. You have different values. You're divisive. You need to be silenced and marginalized and punished for your ways. Isn't that just fascinating? How things really never change. Nothing new under the sun. The spirit of this world has always pursued the people of God, often through government and culture itself. Verse 9, Haman says, If it's pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. What you have here is powerful, wealthy entities like Haman and all that he represented, bribing the king, bribing a big government to implement their godless agendas. We have no real way to stop them. The people of God have no real way to stop them. Other than God's providence, other than God's intervention, without that, we really have no hope. Verse 10, Then the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, The silver is yours, and the people also, to do with them just as you please. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and it was written, Just as Haman commanded the king's satraps to the governors who were over each province and to the princes of each people, each province according to its script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring, Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. Haman wanted to genocide the people of God. He bribed big government and got their support. He solicited all of the citizens of the empire and said, You know what? If you do this, whoever you kill, you get their wealth. The prize for joining us in this task to eliminate those who don't hold our values in our ways are not like us and our king evil always seeks to punish and ultimately mass murder the people of god evil hates the good it is diametrically opposed to the good of god's design and of god's ways it seeks to pervert and then destroy god's ways along with anyone who embraces god and his ways Verse 14, a copy of the edict to be issued as law in every province was published to all the peoples so that they should be ready for this day. The couriers went out impelled by the king's command while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa. And while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. You can imagine the Jewish people all over the empire as the word got out to everyone, totally outnumbered threatened their very lives. What are we going to do? We can't rise up. We don't have the power. We're not organized. How will we ever escape this? It's too much. It's too big. It's too overwhelming. Where is God in all of this, right? Chapter 4. Esther, the queen of Persia, is petitioned to take political action. When Mordecai learned all that he had been done, or all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. In each and every province where the, ki- where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. The Jewish people recognized their only hope was God Himself. They sought Him with fasting and intercession. They knew that's our only way out. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came, uh, and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. Then Esther summoned uh, Hathach from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So Hathach went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict which had been issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show Esther and inform her in order and to order her to go into the king to implore, implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. Esther's plan was via Mordecai. In fact, Mordecai was commanding Esther. Mordecai, who had a claim on her, he was her adopted father. He now comes to her and he says, as her father, Esther, you must do this. You have to take action. I think there's a principle here that we can see and use, even in our day today, to bring about change. We're facing so many things in our nation, it's making our head spin. It's like, what is going on? I mean, we are fundamentally being changed and transformed in such an ungodly way. An agenda that's so evil. It's just shocking to most of us. And we feel like, what can we do? I mean, you just feel like, you know, it's, it's much greater and bigger and stronger than we are. We can't stop this, Right? The Jewish people have always known that their first measure and step towards change was always repentance, coming back to God in humility, praying and seeking His face, gaining His wisdom, and then through that, taking political action according to His design, His ways to bring about change. Notice, the Jewish people who were so threatened, didn't rise up, running out of their homes, screaming, frothing at their mouths, assaulting people, destroying property, looting, burning down businesses, raping and murdering people. No, they were peaceful, demonstrating peaceably, finding ways to respectably, respectfully appeal to the king. The church needs to rise up, find her place, intercede, get a plan from God, and then go about his business in a way that's respectable and ordered and peaceful. This is what gains the, the favor of, of delegated authority. Hathach came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king, to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law that he be put to death, unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days they related Esther's words to Mordecai. Esther's going to have to learn this lesson here. It's the lesson that all of us have to learn. That every one of us, every one of us who are called by his name will come to a place in our lives where we'll have to make decisions to stand for what is right, despite what it may cost us. Each and every one of us will be tested on this over and over and over. Will we stay faithful to the King of heaven and be a witness to him speaking on his behalf when it costs us our livelihoods and maybe even our lives? This is a core component to what it means to be righteous We must peacefully and respectfully speak up and speak out on the big issues that are before us, regardless of the threats of being vilified, censored, silenced, fired, etc., etc. Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. It's not an easy path. Being politically incorrect will gain persecution. Mordecai helps Esther to see the bigger picture. Chapter 4, 13 through 15, listen to this. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all of the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place and you and your father's house will perish. If you remain silent. If you remain silent. Evil finds a way to silence people. Evil uses intimidation tactics to silence people. We can see that all around us today. When you think of the story of Esther, do you know what this story is really all about? This story is all about our inalienable right to exercise our religion unhindered and unmolested by civil government. Civil government has no jurisdiction in the realm of religion. Haman's saying, I don't like the Jews' religion. Therefore, I'm getting rid of the Jews. People is no different today. What we're given in terms of the Torah is a way of life that's in contradistinction to the way of life in America today. And if you speak out on those differences... You will be intimidated, persecuted, silenced. You'll lose your jobs, your livelihood, your standing in society. That's how evil works, to keep you silenced. Will you remain silent? This is the story about liberty. Our God is the God of liberty. He gives us the right to worship Him and serve Him even when civil government says, no, you won't. Think about speaking out today on any of their sacred cows. Speak out on abortion and see what happens to you. Say anything about homosexuality and watch what happens to you. Dare, dare to judge same-sex marriage as being abhorrent, a perversion of what God gave us. Probably lose your job. Transgenderism, socialism, vaccines, prejudice, and racism. Think about this for a minute. Think about this for a minute. If you don't accept what they say is politically correct on any of these issues, you'll be labeled, vilified, silenced, and lose your livelihood. I think that's going to actually cost us even more in the days ahead. In Persia, it was going to cost them their life to stay the course in fidelity to God and His ways. It was going to cost them their lives. Each Jew in the empire had to make a decision. Will I remain faithful or will I hide my Jewishness, blend in and adopt the ways of the society I'm living in in order to escape the genocide that's coming? Yeah, the word of the Lord to Esther is the word of the Lord to us. Do not imagine that you can, in the king's palace, escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent, deliverance will still come, but you will perish in your disobedience. And then finally, verse 14, which is the sizzle of the book. He says, and who knows, Esther? Think about it. Who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Providence. He schools Esther on this great mystery called Providence that God works behind the scenes to bring about his plans. And he's saying, Esther, wake up. What are you thinking? Did you come here to this place of being the second most powerful person in the empire through a series of complicated coincidences? You were a nobody, a Jewish girl in the exile, and now you're queen of Persia. How do you think that happened? That was God, Esther. You're in this place because God had a plan to save his people You're the plan. All of her wondering, her agony, her trauma, maybe even her bitterness at what had happened to her was now shifted and changed in a moment. As she became aware that, no, this was God's workings. What has happened to me was navigated by God. I'm the plan. It's me. The weight of the plan is on my shoulders. For her, this was a compelling and true statement. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go assemble all the Jews who were found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. You you know, God's providence works in in conjunction with his foreknowledge, okay? So he chooses different people for different reasons, for different callings to do different things based on his foreknowledge. He knew Esther before she was even born. He knew her temperament, her personality. He knew how she would be shaped in losing her parents. He, He knew all this ahead of time, and he says, no, this is the one that I can use, that will cooperate with me and respond to me in my providence. And now, she understands who she is, why she was born, and the will of God for her life. So Mordecai, verse 17, went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. It's the first time that she commands Mordecai. There had to be something bittersweet about that. Because Mordecai has been her papa all along, right? And he's been telling her what to do. She gets her footing. She says, all right, I understand now. I'm the plan. Okay, now I'm giving you a command. Go and pray for me. Go and fast. Get everyone else to fast and pray and intercede. Because the fate of the Jewish people will be decided When I step into the king's palace, into the king's court, uninvited. If I die, y'all die. So pray. Pray that God makes a way for me. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms, and the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. When the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight. Again, that favor thing, right? God touched his heart. He, he turned his heart towards the queen. She's standing there. I'm sure, the, I'm sure the whole place there came to a standstill. When she came uninvited, they're probably you know, breathless, waiting on what the king's going to do. Is the queen going to die? Right? Yet, the king's heart is touched by God. He has favor. Uh, Immediately, she has favor in his sight. And the king extended to Esther the golden scepter, which was in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. Mm -hmm. Then the king said to her, What is troubling you, Queen Esther? He knew this was a big deal. Whatever it is, it's big because she risked her life. What is it? What's troubling you? What is your request, Esther? Even to half the kingdom, it shall be given to you. That's favor. That's favor. Esther said, If it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I've prepared for him. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared, and they drank. uh, And as they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther, what is your petition? For it shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half the kingdom, it shall be done. So Esther replied, My petition and my request is if I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and do what I request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet, which I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do, as the king says. I mean, I mean think about this. She's in there with the king. He's saying, whatever you ask, I'm gonna give to you. She stumbles, loses her own confidence, isn't quite sure what to say, and decides, hey, let's do this again tomorrow. You know, for Esther, she needs more time. For whatever reason, she's not comfortable telling the king. Maybe she hasn't even really sort through what to do next or how to even get this uh, matter uh, addressed. She says, tomorrow which is interesting because I believe God's at work in Esther, actually maybe even creating the emotional states to where she's not comfortable saying anything because God's going to do something really amazing in this story and in this delay. Verse 9, Then Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches and the number of his sons. And in every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. He is the prime minister of Persia. Second only to the king, and he's boasting and gloating in it. Haman also said, even Esther the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she had prepared. And tomorrow also, again, I'm invited by her to be with the king. So he's just boasting and gloating in this. Yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Mordecai the Jew. Mordecai the Jew. Jesus the Jew. It's interesting when you bring up the Jewishness of Jesus, how people get like nervous, sweaty palms, wanting to somehow challenge that, but not being comfortable with it. I don't know what it is about people being bothered that Jesus is Jewish. It's just crazy. It's the spirit of Antichrist. Get free of that. Get free of that. The Jews are not the problem. Then Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows fifty cubits high made, and in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman. So he had the gallows made. Everything's good to go. Now I can really enjoy this place, this position I have in the empire. I'm the great one, right? Even the queen has invited me just to be with her and the king tomorrow again. And now this man that robs me of my joy, Mordecai the Jew, I'll have hanged by tomorrow. Then I can truly enjoy the banquet. Here again, the providence of God. Chapter 6 and verse 1. During that night, the king could not sleep. He's having a bout of insomnia. He sleeps perfectly fine all the other nights, but on this night and no other night, he can't sleep. So what does he do? He gives an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles of the kingdom to be read before him in his bout with insomnia. (laughs) That is providence again. Verse 2, it was found written, what Mordecai had reported concerning Bithana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, and that they had sought to lay hands on the king Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Can't sleep. Come read. Read me some history. I want you to read to me some of the things that have transpired under my great rule and reign. And of all the things that could have been read, for nights and nights, going on for weeks and months, the chronicles were quite extensive. It was the history of his rule and his reign. He probably flipped through and said, "Oh, I don't know, let's start here. And reads the account of Mordecai exposing through Esther to the king the assassination plot that would have took his life because the two men that were the doorkeepers of the king's palace could have, could have pulled that off. The king's like, oh, man, he saved my life. So what did we do for him? Read on, tell me, what, what did we do for, for this man, right? Nothing. Nothing has been done for him. So the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace. Haman just enters in right when the king's saying, who's in my court? Well, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai. He is on his way to request the death of Mordecai. He just got done reading about Mordecai, right? The king's servant said to him, Behold, Haman standing in the court, and the king said, Let him come in. Haman came in, and the king said to him, What is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king desire to honor more than me? I'm the greatest in the kingdom. The queen just invited me yesterday, and today this must be about me. They're planning on honoring me. Oh, happy day, right? Then Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king desires to honor, let them bring, he he comes up with the best plan, because it's about him. Let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn, and the horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. And let the robe and the horse be handed over to the one Uh, of the king's most noble princes and let them array that man whom the king desires to honor and lead him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Great plan. Take quickly the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so for Mordecai, the Jew, who is sitting in the king's gate, do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. So Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai. Can you, can you imagine how uncomfortable Mordecai is? It's like, what, what is he doing? He's trying to put the robe on me, and what is all this about? He is as confused as Haman is confused. You know, I'm sure Mordecai said, I, I say, I've saved the king's life. He did nothing for me. I'm here. I'm in the exile. They took my daughter from me, Lord. You know, I've done everything right. I've, I've spoken up. I've been your man. Where's the reward? And all of a sudden, out of the blue, one day, this happens. No good deed goes unrewarded. might have to wait a while maybe even years but god will make good on that he blesses those who walk in righteousness so haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor can you imagine everybody everybody without exception that's watching this happen, they're thinking, is that Haman? And and is that Mordecai on the king's horse? And what is Haman saying? What is happening? What's going on here? You know, this is like a mind-blowing experience for everyone that's involved. After it's over, it says, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried home mourning with his head covered. Haman recounted to Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and Zeresh, his wife, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, You will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. I just want to put on the end of that. I think it's maybe in the gematria or, you know, Jewish mysticism. The rest of the verse is something like, thus saith the Lord. You do not curse the Jewish people. If you do, the curses will come on you. Do not curse the Jewish people. Do not curse the people of God. That's the Gentiles that are grafted into them through faith in Messiah. Touch not the Lord's anointed and do his people no harm. Do his prophets no harm. While they were there, still talking with them, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet, which Esther had prepared. Destiny is set. No one can escape it. Haman is thrust into the banquet. His mind going a zillion miles an hour, right? In conclusion, I want to restate that providence is God's hidden works in exercising care and guidance in directing human affairs to bring about his will and his plans. God has a plan for our country. The application is that God has a plan for America, the United States. God has a plan for Israel. God has a plan for His people in every nation. This is global now. What God is doing is is just so, you know, in some ways it's so veiled and we can't see it yet. And it just feels like everything's going south quickly and there's no hope. And yet that's exactly where they were. God says, hey, I'm the one that's doing this. And you're not going to understand it until I'm finished. Your job is to trust me, be faithful, learn the stories and the lessons. I'm the same today as I was yesterday and forevermore. I believe God's doing something significant. And as frustrating and as discouraging as it is to live in a nation that hates God, hates His ways, and wants to just undermine all of it, And it looks like it has the power, the wealth, and the political clout to do it. God has a plan to disrupt all that and overturn it. We've seen Him do this over and over and over. I'm confident that He'll do it for us. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His people. Or to, to his purpose. You are the people of God. The people of God in this nation have God's favor. And he has a plan that he wants to do in the nation that's going to include us. And it starts in the little things, being faithful in the little things, speaking out in kindness, with respect, his truths on any and all of the issues. And if you are persecuted, so be it. If you lose your job, so be it. God is with us. He'll make it right. He can turn it all around. Our job is to be an Esther. Our job is to be a Mordecai and to be a shining light in this time of darkness. So i want to ask you a few questions in closing. Some over my time. So there's no question and answers this week. In what ways has God worked on your behalf? Do you view life and circumstances through the lens of God's providence? The things that have happened to you in your life? Do you try to look through the providence of God and understand that? Or are you stuck in the circumstances of what has happened to you? Bitter, angry, and without hope. God is not the problem. God is the solution. He has the answers. He can turn all that around for you. You just got to trust in Him. Spend time with Him daily. Discover who you are in Him. Disc- discern what He's calling you to be, what it is that He's called you to be and to do in life. Live the thrill of God's providential care and protection. When you're in His will, you are Invincible. Invincible. When you're out of his well, stumbling around in darkness, in the flesh, you have no protection. Find out what it is that he's called you to do and to be and do that with great joy and great courage.